Well, welcome to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, it's a privilege to welcome Mr. Brian Howard. And Brian is the executive director of Acts 29. And so, Brian, welcome. Thank you so much for coming and joining us on the Vine Conversations, the Vine Church Podcast. Man, it's great to be with you here today, Zach. And um, and I'm happy to be talking to the Vine Church today. Yeah. So, Brian, just help us get to know you a little bit. Um you know, anything you want to share just to help us get to know you, your family, some of your work history. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear just anything like along those lines. Yeah, so, okay. I live in Southern California, about 60 miles south of Los Angeles. I've been married in, a, in Orange County, South Orange County. I've been married for 27 years to my wife, Shander, who I met at Master's College, okay. uh, where John MacArthur was the president. So I got there about 30 years ago. Okay. So 27 years, four kids. Um, my kids are 22, 20, 18, and 16. So my oldest son's graduating from California Baptist University next Friday. Rick Warren's alma mater. Oh, I don't wow. know, maybe maybe somebody else's alma mater, but I don't know who else. Uh, and then <laughs> my daughter's also a junior at Cal Baptist. I have a son who's a freshman engineering student at UCSD next year, University of California, San Diego. And, uh, and then a daughter who's a junior in high school. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I mean, my family's from the Los Angeles area, but from seventh grade on, grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Dad was a pastor, so I grew up in a Christian home. Um, master's college, undergrad, Talbot Seminary. Okay. Uh, so Talbot is the grad school of Biola. Yep. Uh, and then, so I'm 50 years old now. So over the course of 27 years, 28 years, I've been in, in, in ministry now. And there's, you know, there's a lot to talk about over those 27 years. But the just the big picture sort of story is, you know, 10 years working in church ministry, executive pastor, youth pastor, church planted, 20 years, it's been 20 years ago, 20 years ago now, church planted wow. in the Los Angeles area. Um, led that church for many, many years. Um, and, and uh, man, I mean, I could, I could say a lot more, but I love basketball like Zach does. Mm-hmm. I like particularly NBA basketball. Mm-hmm. My man. I'm a fallen, I'm a, I'm a backslidden University of Arizona Wildcats fan because we've had a lot of scandal in the program yeah. in the last few years. But I, I grew up a mile from the campus uh, and, you know, Lute Olson and Steve Kerr and that whole era, Sean Elliott. Man, so then, Brian, hold up. We've got something really in common because I was raised in Iowa and Lute Olson was the first Iowa Hawkeye basketball coach that I ever remember. And then I remember when he transferred to Arizona, I was just crushed. I, mean, I was probably like eight years old, but I was just crushed because he was like this icon and they had a lot of success when he was the coach. Hey, so that was 1982 and I was 12 years old. Okay. So I was in the seventh grade and the year that Lute Olson landed in Arizona, they were four and 24 and they recruited this, you know, short white kid named Steve Kerr. Yep. And uh, so I started going to these games as a kid because I was a basketball fan and I grew up next to the campus in the college community. Wow. Uh, The church that my dad pastored was just a mile away from the University of Arizona campus. In fact, I went there straight out of high school and then transferred to master's college. But all that to say, I grew up watching Steve Kerr. He was the local hero. I'm sorry, Zach, that we stole Lute Olson from you, but (laughs) he took he took Iowa to one final four. That's right. He was there. That's right. Yeah. So. 
All that to say, yeah, man, that's a, that's a that's the snapshot of the story, and, and obviously there's a lot that's happened along the way, but that gives you a little background. Yeah, that's that's good, man. That's good. So you're a Phoenix Suns fan? Not a Phoenix Suns fan. I'm a Lakers fan. Okay, all right. So you know, I mean, I, I'm a I I I've been able to do some work with the NBA and with NBA players, particularly in the last five or six years. And so I've gotten to know some of the Lakers players and one of my best friends is one of the coaches at the Lakers. And so I've been to a lot of Lakers games, gotten to know quite a few players in the NBA. In fact, I know some of the Timberwolves players, or at least I have, because the guy who I know well was a coach for the Timberwolves for a while as well. So, so who's I, that? His name is Mike Penberthy. Okay. Yeah, a good friend of mine. Uh, played won two championship rings for the Lakers, um, and then I helped him build a build a business in the NBA. So probably ten years ago, so we've done quite a bit of work together. And he's one of my lifelong friends as well. And so now he is probably the most well known shooting coach in the NBA. And he's a he's an assistant coach for the Lakers now. Worked for the Timberwolves, then worked for the Pelicans for a number of years, and then with the Anthony Davis trade. He came out with Anthony Davis and signed a four-year deal with the Lakers last year, just in time to win another championship. Right. So, are you going to a lot of games, or are they having fans? Uh, are they having fans yet? Well, before COVID, I was going to a lot of games, even going on road trips and that sort of thing. But post COVID, I haven't been to any games. So, uh, it's you know, it's um, the NBA's in a in a bit of a crazy season right now, right. and in in the Los Angeles area where I live, just south of LA. Uh, we're not open like Texas is. You know, right. I was talking to Matt Chandler yesterday, and he said uh, it's we're wide open in Texas, and that's not how we are here. So I haven't been. The last uh, NBA game I was at was I was at three in a row on the Lakers East Coast swing, Madison Square Garden. Wow. It was the weekend that Kobe Bryant died. I was oh I was out gosh. there on the Lakers road trip on the East Coast, oh, and man. I have not been to a game since January the twenty fifth, twenty twenty. So you were with the team when they found out that he had passed. I was not sitting with the team, but but I uh, I went on that. A friend of mine uh, who who both know several of the Lakers and who know Mike Penberthy well traveled to the traveled to those East Coast games to spend time with Mike. We you know we sat with the with the Lakers families and and we know a lot of those guys and so. We were we weren't like on the team plane. The team sure. found out that Kobe died on the team plane, but we were on the East Coast swing with the Lakers, going to those games, hanging out with the families, uh, because we've been able to do that over the course of years with teams that Mike has coached in. Wow. Well, man, my 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 church knows that we could spend the whole hour talking NBA, but I will I will spare them of that pleasure. Um, but man, I, I'd love to. Almost every time we have someone on the podcast, we have a podcast about once a week. I just ask folks to share their conversion story because it's, I think it's so good for our people to be reminded that God still converts people, you know, in Madison, you know, it's uh, very post-Christian here and it can sometimes feel like tough sledding and, you know, is God, is God still saving people? And of course we know the right answer is yes, but it's just good to hear stories to be reminded and, if you'd be willing just to share us, share your story with us about how you um, came to be solidified in your desire to follow Jesus. Yeah, so I grew up in a in a home with two very godly parents who have now been married for coming up on fifty five years, and so um, my parents were first generation Christians, saved in the Jesus movement of the sixties in Los Angeles. 
So, you know, neither, none of their, their, they didn't grow up in Christian homes, either of them. Both of them were led to Christ in high school. They met in their high school youth ministry in Los Angeles and went to college together. And, and then essentially my dad in his later 20s moved to Ohio from Los Angeles, like Southern California surfer growing, growing up next to the campus of USC. His dad was a fire chief in Los Angeles. And, and he moves to a little town in Ohio to take over I think now we would call it church plant. He wasn't calling it church planting back then because they already had 13 people. <laughs> so, you know, 13 people. Um, and and my dad moves from Los Angeles to Ohio. And so I was born in this little town in Ohio where my dad pastored that church for 11 years. After 11 years, my parents felt like they needed to get back to the West Coast because that's where family was. Their parents were aging. So my dad took a church to Tucson, Arizona when I was in the seventh grade, which is which, you know, takes me to that University of Arizona basketball story. You know, we got there right as as Lute Olson got there. And so uh, just grew up in a really faithful Christian family. By the time I was 13 or 14 years old, I began to lose my interest. And now going back to my conversion story, I was saved as a young kid, baptized as a kid, about 11 years old. Uh, remember that clearly, you know, um, Grew up knowing the Lord, growing up, grew up understanding the gospel. I really do believe I understood it at a young age. But at 13 or 14 years old, probably about ninth grade or so, uh, going into 10th grade, I really lost interest in living any sort of a Christian life. Now, I didn't go completely off the deep end and join a gang and go to prison and become a drug addict. Right. But uh, <laughs> you might have thought that about me, but it, it never happened. Mm -hmm. So, but I just, you know, I, I essentially, for three or four years, was just not very interested in Christianity at all. And some of that was because I think, you know, I, I had been raised in, in a fundamentalist culture. Uh, my parents were saved into this sort of fundamentalist world, went to Bob Jones University, and I didn't see that as uh, credible Christianity when I was in the ninth grade, you know. So for those four years or so, now I would have still told you that I was a Christian, but I, um, you know, I was really really wavering in terms of whether or not I wanted to follow Christ at all. I joined the military straight out of, uh, well, after a semester of college and found myself um, really confronted with, am I going to serve Jesus or not? So yeah. in boot camp in San Diego, uh, 1989, about April of 1989, so this would be a lot of years ago, I wasn't sure if I was a Christian or not at that point. So I remember sort of, you know, back then we were using the language of recommitting my life to Christ. Right. And so, you know, I wasn't sure if I became a Christian right then or if I was a Christian when I was young. Later on, I, you know, I read John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus. And then I thought, maybe I was never a Christian. Today, Zach, here's what I would say. I became a Christian when I was young. Yeah. When I was a young kid, I understood the gospel. Uh, I, I The Holy Spirit was in me during those high school years. It was clear to me that the conviction of the Holy Spirit was on my life. I just was, you know, I, I whatever word we would use at this point, I was, um, I was um, testing out some stuff during those teenage years. Sure, I would say God brought me back. What nineteen years old, and since that point, man, I've been, uh, I've really been in ministry since that point. Went to a Christian college at that point, and dove into ministry from that point on. So that's been now thirty-one years ago. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, man. I'm curious, like for your parents, were they raised in just straight um, de-churched kind of environment? Uh, my dad grew up in a completely non-religious environment. So 
there are no Christians in my dad's family that I know of. My mom's gotten into genealogy as she's gotten older. And so I don't think there was any religion in my dad's family at all. So um, there was no like falling away from church. They were just, they were non-religious uh, in my dad's family. In fact, when my dad became a Christian, his cousin led him to Christ. Uh, I think at Taft High School in Los Angeles, Woodland Hills, where he went. Now my, my, my mom's um, ancestors were Mormons, but okay. they had left the Mormon church three or four generations before my mom was born. Her parents came to Christ about the same time that she did. So she became a Christian at 14 or 15 years old, and her parents also came to Christ about that same time. My dad's mom and dad, as far as we know, never came to Christ. They they essentially, um, they were very hostile to him when he became a Christian, didn't understand why he would go to a Christian college, didn't understand why he would be a Christian. But, um, you know, he, his relationship with them was great throughout life, but they never professed faith in Christ during their lifetime, either one of them. But both of my mom's parents did. So for your parents, like, they just heard the gospel from a friend or at some like youth group event and it just kind of clicked for them. I'm always, I'm always curious about what it is for those folks that I've never understood before. And then was it like an immediate thing or was it a slow process for them or? Boy, you know, that's a great question. And I don't know a tremendous amount of detail. Here's what I, here's what I do know. Um, my dad had a cousin who would bring his Bible to school, like public school. Now, remember, this was 1964, 65. And um, I, my, it was through my, my dad's cousin and another guy who I believe his name was Walt Brock, who I think runs a Christian camp still to this day out in kind of the desert of California. So my dad had a couple of teenage friends that evangelized him, yep. a cousin and another friend yep. in his public school in Los Angeles. My mom, who's two years younger than my dad, uh, I think it was the same situation. Now, they're going to be here at my house uh, for my dad's 78th birthday coming up next Monday. So they're, they're coming to visit and are going to hang out here for a little while. But I think my mom was the same kind of deal. She had Christian friends in her public high school. So if you're listening today and you're a public high school kid, you know, like I have a son and, and a daughter in public high school, and we've done all three homeschool, Christian school, public school, but, yep. but my, all four of my kids eventually will graduate from public school. So if you're a kid listening to this or a parent of a teenager, know that both of my parents came to Christ through a witness in their public school. And then they ended up in their church for, for, for Canoga, Faith Baptist Canoga Park, way back in the 1960s, ended up in a youth ministry and were in relationship with their youth pastor clear into their 60s. I love it. Which is, you know, so, so yeah, take heart in knowing God is still saving people. Man. Yeah, amen, amen. My dad had the same conversion story. Like he, uh, you know, raised in the Lutheran church, but my dad was kind of a, a wild guy and um, he had a buddy on the football team that just, they're sitting in the car and, hey, do you, do you know Jesus? Like, do you know, like if you were to die, like, you know, that, that kind of, um, method that was popular a few decades ago, like if you were to die tonight, do you know where, what would happen to you? And I think it's still a great question. And, uh, and my dad, he just, in the, and the guy just shared the gospel with him and it just clicked. And, um, and that was kind of it. <laughs> and yeah. so it's it's just good to hear. I feel like our people need to be encouraged um, 
even as our Christian gets more, our Christian, our culture gets more and more post-Christian, um, it's easy for evangelism to feel more and more scary. And I just have a burden for us to continue to pray for boldness and step out in faith and boldness. Um, and God promises to use the word that is scattered to save those who he calls. So, Man, you know, one thing I would say about that, Zach, is we can feel like in the United States that that Christianity is really waning, particularly when, when we, you know, we see what's going on maybe politically or we see state of the church today, or, or we watch, you know, sort of intellectual elites on TV that act like, or even, even, even a show like Saturday night live that makes it seem like if you're a, you know, you're a Christian, you don't believe in science and you, right. you're, you somehow were a product of a hundred years ago. But I recently, I haven't finished this book yet, but Re- Rebecca McLean's book confronting Christianity yes. in the very first chapter. And I'm currently reading this book, but in the, in the very first chapter, she talks about the fact that Christianity is growing globally. Right. So I, I would say to I would say to your church right now, just know God is active in saving people, even though it might feel like secularization is is has taken hold in the U.S. What we know is that most immigrants coming to the United States are not secular. Most of them are religious, and many are Christians. And yep. Christianity is growing in many nations around the world. So, man. Take heart in knowing God is not done doing his work. God yep. is not finished. It just feels like that sometimes. Yep. We're not the first people that have ever felt like that. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we, we can be so narcissistic or we feel like we're so unique. Like our point in history is like the worst or like the things that no one's ever seen before. And it's rarely the case. Yeah. yeah. So, Brian, yeah, tell yeah. us about, um, just give us a 30,000 foot view of Acts 29. You're the executive director. Um for, for someone at our church that doesn't have a clue what Acts 29 is, how would you describe it in a couple minutes or less? Yeah, so Acts 29 essentially is a global movement, global community of church planting churches. I prefer the language of healthy multiplying churches because, uh, you know, I've been in the church planting world for the last 20 years, but I think Look, what unites us in Acts 29, we've got some theological commitments for sure. So we're, we're united around a particular set of theological commitments, but every church in Acts 29 is committed to seeing more churches started. So, you know, most people might not even understand what church planting is, or many, many Christians don't even understand what church planting is, mm-hmm. but, but all of us are sitting in churches or worshiping in churches or in community with churches that somebody started. Right. Right. So that is not over. We haven't stopped starting new churches. Now, so Acts 29 essentially is a is a huge global movement in 50, you know, the exact, I think it's 53, it's over 50. I don't want to exaggerate, but I think it's 53 nations and 31 languages that Acts 29 is actively planting churches in. So just, just an hour ago, I, I got off a call, I'm not sure, 100 plus people from all around the world. We do a global prayer meeting once a quarter. I was just on a, a Zoom meeting with a, a hundred plus people from all around the world. You know, we had a we break out into breakout rooms and pray. We had a lady in our breakout room didn't speak a word of English. She was from Italy. She was, you know, trying to say, I can't even understand you guys, but I'll pray in Italian, you know. So so essentially in Acts 29, about 700 churches globally, uh, 500 in the United States, 200 outside of the United States, but growing rapidly outside of the United States. 
And, and essentially what we do is we start new churches. So we hope there's more than 500 churches in Acts 29 in the United States at some point. Now, I'm not a huge, like, you know, I'm not, we don't have to go from 500 to 1,000 to 12,000 to 60,000 because not all church plants go, but we want to continually grow because we want to continue to see new churches started in, in rural communities, in, in urban communities, in suburban communities, in English-speaking locations, in Brazil and Guatemala and India and China. We want to see more churches started because that means people are coming to know Christ and are gathering together to worship God in a local church context, which is what we see happening over and over again in the New Testament. So if you want just five words here, global community of multiplying churches, global community of multiplying churches. I love it. And we just had a membership class and we had somebody ask us like why planting churches is is worthy to be focused on. And one of the things that I shared in the membership class was, and I just got this from Tim Keller, you know, it creates a culture of generosity. Instead of focusing on, man, let's get everybody into this building and we can provide everything that they need. It, it provides this opposite mindset of instead of people thinking about what is this church going to give to me, what does this church provide, we're constantly preaching, hey, we're sending, we're giving. We're not measuring success by how many people come through the door. We're measuring success by how many people we can send. Now, if people want to come to our church, great. Great, but come with an attitude of, I'm here to be generous. I'm here to be a sender. I might even be sent myself, you know? So that's one of the biggest strengths I see. And there's many others, of course, to church, a culture of church planting in a church. But I just love that generous mindset. Would you say that you see that happening across Acts and churches when they focus on church planting? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we do in Acts 29 is we ask every church, to give 10% of its budget toward church planting. And so, you know, we have, I think of Josh Corey, who is a pastor in Oklahoma City uh, at Frontline Church. They've built, and this is just one example of of dozens or or perhaps even hundreds. They built a very strong relationship with a local church in central England, and they're planting churches together. Right. I think of I think of Chris Lewis, who pastors Foothill Church in Glendora, California, which is kind of the east side of Los Angeles. They've built relationships with several planters across Europe. Uh, we we just actually brought on a a, a a partnership director in Acts 29 whose sole goal is to build relationships between local churches in the U.S. and churches globally because. If every Acts 29 church, 700 churches are giving 10% of their budgets to church planting, we're going to be planting churches in unreached people groups and all over the world. So that generosity component is huge. Yep. And I think, look, individually, probably like you, Zach, and in your church, we've we've trained our kids, at least done our best to try to do that. We've modeled generosity as a family. We've trained that at the at the church level. We're generous as we give money away and plant yep. new churches yep. and, and do things outside of our own local communities even. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, in my in my mind, it's it's definitely financial. It's never less than that, but it's also more. It's just more of a mindset of like we are a giving church. We can send some of our best people. And then we see God provide. And that's that just undergirds our faith and strength strengthens it even more, you know. 
Yeah, so, definitely. So, man, how have you seen Acts 29? How, how long have you been in Acts 29? I've been 11 years. I began in Acts 29. Um, it's been about 16 years for me, sometime around... You know, I recently went back and tried to find an exact date, and it's a little difficult. I've even asked a couple of people, well, what's the exact date that I came in? So, and it's, there's no exact record of it because I didn't go through a, I came in before assessment was formalized. Okay, but this is the early so, days when it was tiny. Yeah, when I came in, there were probably 50 or 60 churches total in Acts 29. Okay. So I came in in the Boulder era, yeah. same time as Eric Mason, Hunter Beaumont. Now, look. There's still, you know, half of those to two thirds of those churches are still around. Um, but all that to say, yeah, I've been in, I've been in around a long time. So in my 11 years, man, I've, I've observed a lot of changes, but I'd love to just hear you reflect on maybe how the network has evolved and changed and um, some of the ways that's changed for the better. So look, Acts 29 originally started all the way back sometime around 1998. We've we've recently tried to do some research on this. And the only guy that is still around from those original five or six guys is Sean Garman, who is our U.S. West director. He was one of the first five guys in Acts 29. But there was a, you know, the Acts 29 in that first four or five years, say 1998 to 2002, was this fledging fledgling network between, you know, Spanish River Church and Mark Driscoll and that sort of thing. And then, you know, I think you could you could say the next era maybe was that 2003 to kind of 2000, I'm not sure the exact date, 2010 kind of era when a lot of us joined. And so it grew from probably 10 churches, 10 or 12 churches up to by 2010, my guess is there were, might've been three, two or 300 churches yeah. in by that point. And so that, you know, in some ways that we could call that the golden era of Acts 29, you know, that we, it was a, it was a fun season to be involved in Acts 29. Everybody knew each other. We all traveled all around the country, but, but I also think there were some things that weren't super positive in Acts 29 in that era. There was a lot of young guys uh, there was um, Axelon got a bit of a reputation uh, for being this young sort of Oakland Raiders of the church planning world, you know, <laughs> young and brash and, and tattooed and our colors were black and gray and you right. go to Exponential and everybody else has booths that were that were widely colored and everybody on our team is wearing black t-shirts and has tattoos. It's still, right. you know, sometimes you still see a little bit of that, but all that to say, you know, w- when you think about where Axelon has come today, you know, I guess... When you hear people talk about, you know, what what church was like in a 20-year-old church, it's like, we were here in the glory days. But look, um, today, it's it was just U.S. then. It's global now. Right. Um, it was, a you know, it was immature then. It's much more mature now. It was probably a bit more theologically undeveloped then. Right. Uh, we now have 52 employees just in the United States and another probably 30 or 40 outside of the United States. And so... It's just, it's a big global organization now with 31 languages that started almost like a church plant with a bunch of young reformed. Now, no, now it, it, I probably should say when I joined Acts 29, I didn't join as a church planter. Our church was already 600 people. I planted it four or five years before. So I joined as an existing church, came out of the, the leadership team really early because we were one of the larger churches in Acts 29 back then. And so I, I wasn't really part of that 
you know, young, I don't have any tattoos. I mean, I have <laughs> nothing against tattoos. I just never could quite figure out what I would want to look at for the rest of my life. Exactly. So I've got a flannel shirt somewhere, but I, you know, I never lived in Seattle. You never so. had a huge beard. No, I can you know, I, I get scratchy like a, like a month in. And so all that to say, I mean, actually has changed a lot. Yeah. I've toured a lot, been through a lot, been through several different iterations Maybe you could say this is 3.0 today. Sure. You know, if you say that Driscoll era was 1.0 and then the the global era uh, from from U.S. to global might be 2.0. And then, I, you know, I, I took over as executive director a year ago from next week. And so um, I guess we'd call this 3.0. Yeah. I remember specifically probably 2013 or 14 when Matt Chandler had taken over as president or whatever his title is. Um and I just remember a distinct shift in a focus on the nations. And that's something that we're really excited about, um, where we target uh, a nation in North Africa and uh, Ecuador. And so we're really excited about that emphasis. You know, we talk about all the time um, church planting among neighbors and nations, and we want to do both really well. And so... Um, yeah, just that that increased nation's emphasis. This isn't just a U.S. thing. This is a global thing. Um, that was really encouraging for us to see that shift. And that was clear. It felt like a marked difference. Yeah, and, and I think Matt really brought that with his leadership. And I think a big part of that was because the Village Church was very focused on the nations, mm-hmm. right? And so, and then, um, you know, as we've seen that grow over the years, now it feels like it's just exploding in some ways you picture that sort of push outward uh i I recently was looking at the statistics in in south america and in latin america and the sheer amount of people in in process in brazil i believe it's over a hundred uh church planning applicants in the acts for nine process just in brazil alone that's awesome you look at it's just it's incredible the outward focus and so truly is a global you know, we don't really call it a globe. We're still wrestling with language right now. We're working on that this year mm-hmm. uh, because we we have a, a conference this fall and we we hope to clarify this language because depending on when you came in in Acts 29, you're probably using different language for Acts 29. And sure. nobody's quite sure when they picked up what, but we are a global community, if you want to call it that, global network. We've used the term global family. We're not quite sure what the the right terminology is we're working on that so we can make sure and recommunicate that but we are a global community of of church planting churches and man pushing more global we expect the global piece the nations to be larger than the u.s piece in three or four years yeah i, I was thinking as we've been talking just you know basics of math there's exponential increase and you got to think if every church is trying to plant a church and that just keeps happening, you know, in a decade, where will we be? Are you already starting to feel the exponential potential? Um, you know, like I remember, you know, five, six, seven years ago when it was, yeah, like two, 300, whatever, 400. And now we're at what 700 official churches with a bunch in the pipeline, right? Yeah. Um, 700 full member churches, give or take, you know, 10 or 15 because yep. it changes, but but around that number, and yeah, with probably another, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but probably another 400 churches right now in the pipeline. And obviously COVID has slowed things down a bit as we record this, you know, we're in coming into summer of 2021. And so um, 
but we're beginning to see assessments happen again and conferences happen again. And so I think we all are hopeful at least that we'll be able to really accelerate going forward. You know, and and I've never, I am numbers driven in that I, I, I enjoy numbers. I tick with numbers. I've been an executive pastor twice. I, I'm not numbers driven where I feel like we've got to get 2000 churches planted by 2025. Right. But, but I think that the very nature of what we're doing is we're starting new churches. We're going to grow. Uh, we, we should be growing because we're, our whole purpose is to start and multiply healthy churches. So, man, we, we should see this go to 800, 900, a thousand, and who knows where God will take us, but hopefully a lot more churches. Here's an interesting question, Brian, that we don't talk about much, but that I've thought of as I've gotten older and you see, um, lots of different things happen the older you get. And that's the opposite of what we're talking about, where a church that doesn't exist anymore And, you know, my thought is that, you know, if we were to say that the apostles were the best church planters anyone's ever seen, the reality is all those churches that they planted don't exist anymore. You know what I mean? So there's a, there's a time, of course there'd be a lineage somehow, but there's a time for a church to, to be planted. And there's a time for a church to die for lack of a better, better word. Do you see um, Acts 29 sometimes facilitating that role as well, where it's just helping someone see it's time to move on and we're not doing a new work. Um, Maybe a new work is going to start in a different way, but this church as it exists now, um, I mean, I'm just thinking about that as we're talking, but how that must be some of the hardest things to walk through when you're walking with guys that are leading churches. Well, first of all, Zach, I have done this personally a lot over a probably 15-year period of time. So personally, I've been involved in helping a lot of churches shut down as well, because if you're going to walk through that journey, and you know, I've spent a lot of my years coaching pastors and church planners and that sort of thing as well. And I, I, I mean, I've lost count of how many churches that we have helped shut down. Now, you could feel discouraged about that, but what I would say is, Part of church planting is knowing that not every church plant makes it. Some church plants make it for five years, and some make it for 10 years, and some make it for 50 years. But none of us are planting permanent churches that last forever. Right. Uh, I mean, there are churches, you know, in the United States that were started 250 years ago, but that's, you know, that's obviously the people that started them aren't alive anymore. And so really, it's not the same church because the church is a gathering of people. So, you know, churches exist in a location to gather a group of people in a particular time and, and they're not going to be permanent. Now that is oftentimes painful for the church planter. Uh, but that's, that's part of what we do. You know, we hope that a church is, we hope that a church gets to year 10 and is self-supporting long-term and lasts, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. I, I don't even know there, there used to be st- statistics out there that said a large percentage of churches that start don't survive. I think today, a higher percentage of churches that start do survive because we have better assessments. We have better resources. Even when I planted back in 2000 and 2001, I'd never heard of an organization like Acts 29. I called several denominations. Most of them weren't interested in church planting. I read books by Ed Stetzer because they're the only books I could find on church planting at the time in 2000. But I would say, yeah, sometimes churches close most of the time, 
every church church closes eventually. You're right. Um, so that's part of what we have to do in this world, and then help those people realize the ministry that God did with you over this this amount of years was beneficial. You cannot measure the success of your ministry always with outward progress. The guy that really served me in military boot camp in 1989 doesn't even know where I am today, and I've never been able to find him again. You know, so man, God's going to use churches and church plants. Uh, some he's going to use in a smaller scale and some at a larger scale, but part of it is knowing that not every church plant is always going to survive for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. It's really insightful, Brian. Brian, I'm curious, for you helping lead this organization that's global now, man, like that's got to be challenging just just in the time in my last decade, I've traveled a lot. Um, I never left the the 48 states until I was about 33, and uh, no, 35, and um, and now I spend a lot of time uh, in North Africa, in Ecuador, in France, and man, cultures are so different, and to keep an organization aligned around a set of values that oftentimes have very unique cultural application, um, just based on context and how people do things, right? Like, how are, how do you attempt to navigate that? Where, man, like how they do things in India is very different than how they do things in Ecuador or in Australia or, or wherever. I, I would imagine you run up against that often. And how do you think about keeping an organization aligned that is so diverse? Man, that's a great, that is a great question. First of all, uh, I would say I've got to recognize that we don't know most things in the United States. So like I, you live in Madison, Wisconsin, for me to even think that I could move to Madison, Wisconsin and plant a church and understand the culture would be arrogant and ridiculous because I'm not from Wisconsin. No, I've been to Wisconsin and I've watched your basketball teams and football teams and you have a mediocre pro football team up there with a <laughs> mediocre quarterback and some fairly uncommitted fans with cheese That's on their exactly, heads. Exactly, you know? exactly. So, so uh, uh, anyways, but, but, but all jokes aside, even in the United States, we have a lot of different cultures. Right. And so, you know, I'm a Southern California guy who moved to Louisville for three years and, and, and felt like, man, I'm a little lost here. This is in the United States, but a, a totally different culture. Right. How much more is that multiplied when you leave the United States? And so here's what I would say. First of all, I've got to recognize how little I actually know and have a posture and attitude of humility and listening. Second, we've got to have strong local leaders out on the ground in those places that are making decisions and calls and that we're learning from. So for example, I think about East Africa, where we have Robert Manda, who pastors a church of about a thousand people in Malawi. I have not yet been to Malawi. I hope to go after, you know, COVID is Lord willing, you know, um, over, you know, yep. I, I don't know if COVID's going to be over or what the future looks like, but, but I, I hope to visit Robert Manda. But I know that for me to assume that I know how ministry is done in Malawi would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Now we have the same Bible, right? Uh, we have the same gospel, but I don't know what time their worship service starts or how many songs they sing or whether they sit or stand or, you know, I, I've seen pictures of what they do. Uh, I think about Francisco in Guatemala or Mitch Munoz in Guatemala or 
or Hugo Charteris in Northern England, all of these places, Jonathan Gilmore in Italy, these are all, you know, contexts that are completely outside of the context that I know and understand. What I know is we're all trying to start churches. Yep. We're all trying to start biblical churches. And I would not walk into a, I wouldn't walk into Madison, Wisconsin and tell you exactly how to plant the church, let alone walk into rural Guatemala or Ecuador or, or Northern Africa or East Africa. So we have local leaders in all of those places that we're trying to funnel dollars and resources and partnerships toward so that they can make local decisions about what it looks like to be a gospel-centered church in Malawi or Ecuador or Northern Africa or Tunisia or East Africa where Robert Malaw Amanda is or, or West Africa where Femi is, you know, we're in all of those places, man, we've got to be learners and not yes. trainers. Yeah. So that's what I would say. Yeah. That, that implies a real posture of humility, you know, and that's absolutely the, God, God promises to bless that. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. So man, what is your day to day like? Um, I would imagine it's just <laughs> zoom meetings all day or what? like uh, probably that for the last 12 months, but like, what is, what is your day to day as director of or executive director of X 29? Well, there's pre-COVID and then there's right. during COVID. Well, let's right? give it. So, let's just assume COVID's over. What, what do you what do you anticipate it being as you move into the future, based on what it has been? So, look, I lead a team ultimately of 52 employees in the United States, and then we've got you know 10, seven or eight network directors outside of the United States, and so a big part of my day to day is leading our leaders, and so. That, you know, during COVID, that's been a lot of Zoom meetings and phone calls. That's about to change, we think. Like, I have two trips planned in May. I'm not traveling uh, overseas yet, but I'll be in Texas in, you know, the second week of May. And then later in May, I'll do an East Coast swing and, and work with several of our leaders, Tony Morita, Brian Lachlan, Chris Atwell, uh, Doug Logan, Brian Lowe. So, so a big part of my... You know, my, my, if, if you said, man, what is your job? First of all, I have to work on the, I, I work underneath a board. Mm -hmm. So I have to, I'm accountable and responsible to carry on the mission of Acts 29. So I had a board meeting yesterday. I write an annual plan. Where's Acts 29 going? I give it to a board. I'm submitted to that board. They speak into that. Uh, I do a monthly call with members of the board. And so I provide a quarterly report to members of the board. So it's my job to figure out underneath the board's authority, where is Acts 29 headed? Where are we going? Yeah. So my day to day, my goal is to try to spend three hours a day working on where Acts 29 is going. So this morning, you know, I'm on a call with Doug Logan because we're addressing some pretty intense issues in the United States around race and culture and justice. And so Doug and I are working on that with a team right now. So let's say spot one is I have to work on where Acts 29 is going. Uh, part two, let's call that part one. Part two is I have to lead key leaders in Acts 29. Now by lead, that doesn't mean dictate or right. they're not my assistants. It's, it's coach, it's empower, it's help keep them working together, help keep them communicating. And so, you know, on a daily basis, I'm going to do four hours of meetings, generally speaking, with with Tony Marita and Doug Logan and Matt Chandler and, and Philip Moore and just key leaders, you know, because we've got all of these key leaders I have to keep running in the same direction. So, 
So I'm, I'm doing a meeting every Thursday morning with Philip Moore, who's then doing meetings with leaders all across the globe. What do you need from me? How can we, how can I help you move forward? And then, you know, part three is I'm working on fundraising. Yep. And so our goal is to raise two and a half million dollars this year. So, so I've got, you know, two meetings with big donors this month to try to help raise money so that we can see these global initiatives moving forward. And then maybe I'll give you one more thing. I would say, um, you know, my, my goal is to travel. Now, look, I don't have a little home anymore. I'm able to travel a bit more at this point. Three of my kids are essentially out of the house. They've been back home during COVID, but they'll be gone again this fall. You yeah. know, one already out of college, uh, two in college. And then I've got a daughter who's a junior in high school. And if you've got kids who are juniors in high school, they're not home a tremendous amount anyway. Right. And so, so anyways, I will begin traveling again, Lord willing. You know, I go overseas three or four times a year. Uh, because I need to be out with people. Yep. So uh, all that to say, that gives you a little bit of an idea. Work on X, where X29 is going, uh, lead our key leaders, uh, travel, pray, <laughs> yeah. you know, study and read, um, network with other leaders. That's kind of what I do. Amen. Well, man, that sounds like a lot. And uh, I'm so thankful for you. Um, funny story, uh, Brian and I met each other via the power of the internet probably a decade or more ago when we both had blogs back when blogging was extremely popular. 12 <laughs> people a day read mine and like 6,000 people a day read yours. As I no, man. So. Uh, it, it was fun. We had a, we had a, um, a lively kind of back and forth about whether pastors should be bivocational or not. And um, that's how I got to know Brian. And were you, a, were you a pastor at that time or you were just doing like full-time coaching no, I was a I was I pastored until 2013. So I either would have been at Copper Hill still at that point, or maybe I went to Sojourn in Louisville in early 2010. Okay, so I think my that's guess where is you were. we probably connected when I was at Sojourn. So I did pastor and preach uh, 26 weeks a year at Sojourn, and I was coaching a lot during that era as well, doing a lot of writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, do you do you still write for a, like an online presence much? Not a lot, you know, so I, I, I have a coaching program for pastors and there's about 150 guys in that. And I meet with them every Wednesday morning. And so I, you know, I took a lot of those, I, I wrote a lot of blog posts back in the day, like you did as well, Zach, I had two or 300 of them. I took all of those and I put them into a, essentially a, a pastoral training process that I launched maybe three or four years ago. And so I probably should be writing more, but sure. I haven't written as much, you know, and, and part of the challenge, Zach, is that I'm an extrovert and, um, you know, there's a lot of pros that come up being an extrovert, but I don't, I, it'd be interesting to know how many extroverts are strong writers. Right. So because I'm an extrovert, I talk it all out and it doesn't get written down. Right. Uh, but there was an era where I was just writing a lot. So I, I am, I do have a couple of book projects and a couple of publishing offers out there. And so do you, do you see myself doing some more writing? I still have a couple hundred blog posts out on the internet uh, that are, you know, that, that I still get a decent amount of traction about. Yeah. I just recommend anybody just Google search Brian Howard coaching or pastor Brian Howard. Um, he, he has a lot of wisdom. Um, I remember reading some of those posts and finding them really helpful back in the day. So, man, let me ask you this. I love asking this question to, to lots of people that come on the podcast. As you think back, you're 50, you said. 
Um, what would you say to your 20-year-old self if you could go back and sit down? 50-year-old Brian is going to go talk to 20-year-old Brian. And like, what's the wisdom that 50-year-old Brian would give to 20-year-old Brian to coach him up um, in whatever way that you would want to share with him? Man, that is a good question. And I feel a little stumped by the question because, and I'm just being totally honest here. I had such wise voices in my life when I was that age Mm -hmm. that I don't have much regret. Yeah. So I think what I would probably say to 20 year old Brian is listen to the wise voices that are in your life Mm -hmm. because you don't know very much right now in your twenties or in your thirties. And frankly, I thought I knew a lot in my forties or, or maybe I didn't think I knew a lot. I, I felt like I should have known a lot by then. Mm -hmm. And even now I feel like, you know, I try to read a book every week. So my, I I try to read for an hour and a half a day. So I, I usually get through a book every week and, and I, I just am blown away by how much I don't know now. Right. <laughs> so feels like I should know more by now. I'm 50 years old. Right. And I just feel like, man, I'm blown away. So I think what I would say to my 20 year old self is do what you did sit underneath wise counsel. I've had 12 or 13 different coaches in my life. I've had mentors. Um, I feel like I've soaked up correction. So take correction. Yep. I would say that too. Yep. When someone corrects you, correction is an act of love, something Amen. for you to learn from, not something for you to defend yourself against. I, I went to a catalyst. I've, ne- I've never been to a catalyst conference before. And they did a one day catalyst conference. And I went and it was Andy Stanley and Craig Groeschel. And I didn't know a whole lot about either one of those guys when I went to this probably 15 years ago. And I heard Andy Stanley say, uh, great leaders absorb and mediocre leaders defend. Amen. And I thought, well, that's, I, I think what he wanted to say is bad leaders defend. So Brian, 50 year old self, back to my 20 year old self, listen to the wise voices in your life, find wise people who can mentor you, coach you, disciple you and uh, take correction and absorb criticism and learn from it and realize you don't know very much when you're that young. So if you're a young man and you're listening to this podcast today, Uh, that's what I would say is I would say, read a lot, grow a lot, be teachable, take Mm -hmm. correction, look for people around you who can invest in you. Yeah. Amen, man. I I love that. Cause all of that preaches again, humility. And that's the biggest thing I would go back and say to my 20 year old self, man, my 20 year old self was so arrogant and man, I, I'd read one John Piper book and I had all the answers and, uh, man, I, I look back with so much regret on stupid things I said and the arrogance that I carried myself with and, um, I would just say like to my 20 year old self and just humble yourself every chance you get and you won't regret it. You know, um, All right, I got one more thing though, Zach, yeah. for your young audience. So I have four kids. Yep. This is completely out of left field. Yep. So this is just for the young married folks that are listening to this yep. today. If we had to do it again, we might even have more than four kids. Yeah. That's another thing I would say. So my 50-year-old self to my 20-year-old self. And I, I had a, a very godly man who mentored me throughout my 20s named Kent Sparks. He was a pastor, and I worked underneath him. And he liked to play golf, and I was a really, really bad golfer. I don't play much golf to this day, but, you know, he was he was my boss. He was the lead pastor. I was a youth pastor. And he would say, come on, Brian, we're going to play golf. And and I that literally was part of my job that, he, you know, we would go out to the golf course, and we would literally, like, talk about theology for three or four hours while we golfed. And yep. so – 
I remember I said to him one time after our first child, how many kids should I have? He said, man, have as many kids as you can have because when, uh, as you can handle, he said, because it's really hard when they're young, but older, it's a huge blessing. So again, out of left field, but if anybody's listening to this podcast today and is going like, man, I would tell my 20 year old self, have as many kids as you can possibly handle because they're a real blessing as they get older. And again, I know that's out of left field. No, man, that's really good. I mean, I've got four kids too. And yeah, there's days when they're little or like in those like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 range where it's just exhausting. And I'm an introvert. And so like, and the older I've gotten, the more introverted I've gotten where I'm just, I don't have any people energy left. I mean, I'm just done. And uh, I'm just exhausted by talking. <laughs> but man, we've got an adult now that's 18 or, you know, an 18 year old and he's going to move out in September. And I, I really resonate. I'm starting to resonate with what you're saying. You're, you're a, a step ahead of me in terms of the parenting journey. But seeing them emerge into adults is uh, it's really cool. It's really cool. And you can see how this is going to morph less into parenting and more into a friendship or maybe just give counsel as they want to receive it, you know. Um, yep. And uh, I, I really I really agree with that, Brian. That's that's good. So, yeah. Yep. Well, Brian, this has really been a great conversation and I'm, I'm so thankful for you. And let me just close with this. Um, what would you say to the Vine Church? You know, we've existed for 11 years now. And we've got God has been faithful to use us to plant two churches uh, in 11 years. But man, our desire is to keep going. And you know what? What would you say to us? Like, what does it take to be a, a church planting church that can sustain that DNA of planting into decade number two or decade number three? Um, do you have any advice for us, just generally speaking? I know you don't know Madison. We talked about that. But the principles that kind of transcend culture, um, what, what would you say? I would say to the Vine Church, there's a, there's a river that's pulling you toward being inward focused. And it's very, very, very few churches maintain an outward focus for a long, long period of time. And so if, if you're listening to this podcast today, you're part of the Vine Church, I would say if the Vine Church can see itself, like I'm, I'm, I'm making a motion with my hands that's a circle right now, as we're, 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 we're arm in arm, locked up, but we're an outward facing circle. Or maybe we're facing inward sometimes, but we're facing outward a lot of the time. And so what I would say is, can the Vine Church in year 15, year 20, year 25, year 30, be an outward-facing church. And I would say, look, I, I wrote a post a few years ago for the Gospel Coalition on how to become a church-planting church. And I, I I basically said, look, there's, and I use the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria sort of language, which, which you know, um, I think is helpful. Um, so when you think about Madison, Wisconsin, what I would say is, are, are you clear on how many people in Madison actually have embraced the gospel and how many haven't? My guess is that, you know, in most of the United States, it's it's between five and 15 percent or 20 percent total. So even if you're very churched, which you're probably not, you even then you'd have 80 percent of the people in your city that don't know the gospel. It's probably 90 percent or greater. Yep. So when you think about your immediate area, are you thinking like we're a church that is outward facing? And then when you think about church planting, 
your job is not to become a church of, you know, 2000 people. And we just have amazing social programs. And again, I'm not against, um, I think a church, it's, it's fantastic when a church can own it, particularly in the United States, when a church owns a facility, has resources, that sort of thing. I'm all for that. But I would say don't settle in and get comfortable. Uh, I mean, the, perhaps the greatest church planting church of our era, at least that I know of, is Spanish River Church in, in Boca Raton, Florida, who's given away $4 million, you know, planted hundreds of churches. And I would say I would hope that you would leave a legacy of that, of being that kind of church. So, you you know, you, you've survived as a church. You're, you're in year 11. You've been around for quite a while. In years 11 through 20, I hope to see you guys plant more churches, see more people come to know Christ and not just be not just become a I mean, maybe you've, you've read the story of the life saving station. You know, pastors used to use that for a uh, uh, of, uh, of a, a sort of a, a preaching analogy. You know, the uh, what do you call it? The, the lighthouse, the lighthouse you know. Yeah. Yeah, the lighthouse story, and you can Google it on the internet. Lighthouse, you know, church station, whatever. But but hopefully, you're not just a lighthouse that's a social club, but you're a lighthouse that's continuing to point people to Christ. Yep. Outward focused in your community in Madison, uh, on mission individually, on mission in your small group, on mission as a church, uh, because we're not here to to um, you know drink red Kool Aid uh, like we used to do when we were little kids and eat sugar cookies at right. church. We're here to help point people to the saving mission of Christ. That's why Christ came. That's what you're doing individually. That's what we're doing as a church. Amen. Man, couldn't have said it better myself, Brian. That's that's a great note to end on. So, brother, thanks so much for your faithfulness. We're so thankful for Acts 29. We're so thankful to be a part of it. Um, and we're praying that uh, what you just spoke would be enacted through our lives and in every church in Acts 29. And every church, for that matter, that loves Jesus and loves his word and loves his people and, and loves uh, evangelism. So may it be so. Thanks, Zach. Great to be here with you. And I'm thankful for your church in Madison, Wisconsin. So I'll be praying for you today. Bye, church. Thank you. Thank you.